From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Today, an exclusive report from the AJC. Fulton County District Attorney Fani Willis has compiled a list of potential witnesses in the Georgia election conspiracy case. The lists include Vice President Mike Pence, Governor Brian Kemp, former Attorney General Bill Barr, Steve Bannon, and others. I'm Bill Nygut. The AJC has also learned that state Republican officials, including Brad Raffensperger, Attorney General Chris Carr, and others, are also on the list of potential witnesses in the trial of Donald Trump and 14 co-defendants. I'm Greg Lustin in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. I'll give you the rundown on the Republican presidential debate that took place here last night. Plus, we'll be joined by the first declared candidate for a congressional seat whose lines remain in doubt. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Greg, what is going on in Tuscaloosa? I I heard about a college bar (laughs) and a filing deadline. What's going on? Patricia, this is my first time in Tuscaloosa since 20 years ago, where I spent the night on a ratty fraternity couch after a Georgia game. Um, so now I'm in a fancy, swanky hotel in downtown. But no, I afterwards, it was a unique night in Tuscaloosa because not only was there a Republican debate, which of course attracted tons of people from outside of Tuscaloosa, but there was also a high school championship football game at Bryant-Denny Stadium right next door to the debate hall. So there was not an Uber to be found in all of Tuscaloosa last night for a couple hours. I believe it. Well, we all know, Bill, that um, high school football is the other religion here in the South. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But Greg, I want to know, are you acknowledging on the air and on the podcast to the AJC accountants that you are staying in a swanky <laughs> hotel in Tuscaloosa. <laughs> I mean, as, as hotels go, the AC, the AC hotel <laughs> on the outskirts of uh, of Tuscaloosa is a pretty swanky one. Okay. okay. Well, we're going to get to the debate to the details of last night's debate later in the show. But first, we've got an exclusive report from you and our colleagues at the AJC about a list of potential witnesses from DA Fani Willis. Uh, about who she could call in the Donald Trump election interference case. One of the colleagues on that scoop was Tamar Hallerman. And Tamar is also joining us. Tamar, thanks so much for being on. Hey, Patricia. Thanks for having me. So, Tamar, tell us about uh, your reporting that uh, the news that y'all broke yesterday afternoon. Tell us what you had. 
We've known for a while now that the Fulton DA's office has a very lengthy list of potential witnesses for the upcoming trial in the elections interference case involving Donald Trump. Initially, they'd mentioned something about 150 names. Uh, We knew from comments from defense attorneys that that list had ballooned to closer to 200. Um, But we didn't have the greatest sense of who was on that list. And CNN reported the other day that former Vice President Mike Pence was on there. Um, So Greg, myself, and and our colleague Bill Rankin went about to see what else we could find out about who's on this witness list. And and we were able to confirm a a wide amount of of names, Um, several senior top officials who served at uh, the Justice Department under Donald Trump, including former Attorney General Bill Barr, um, folks like Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue, who were serving in more of an acting capacity in the final days of the Trump administration. There's Steve Bannon, the podcaster, provocateur, Trump strategist, as well as Congressman Scott Perry from Pennsylvania. Um, and then there's a whole slate of, of Georgia leaders as well, um, folks who testified to the special grand jury earlier on, folks like Governor Brian Kemp, Attorney General Chris Carr, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. Um, so it really goes to show how broad um, of a list the DA has and, and the types of folks she could call. Yeah, tomorrow I think we could all infer our own um uh, guesses about what this means for the potential case that Fonnie Willis is looking to prosecute. But what does it tell you that this is the list that she has? And we are, um, you know, less than six months away from that potential trial. Yeah. I mean, it shows the the complexities in this racketeering indictment. And really, when you look at the indictment, they do allege one large conspiracy, but the conspiracy falls into several alleged buckets. There's the phone calls that Donald Trump made to state officials pressuring them to overturn the election results. Folks like Kemp, Carr, Raffensperger all got calls from the former president. Um, there's the appointment of a slate of, of Trump electors. And even within this list, two names that I did not um, say earlier who we confirmed were on there, um, Johnny Isaacson's son, um, who was initially slated to serve as a, a Republican elector, but backed out after he saw that um, to him, it seemed like political gamesmanship was his quote. Um, also, C.J. Pearson, um, a conservative social media star who who ended up also backing out. So that's another area the DA is looking at. You're also seeing folks who were in Donald Trump's inner circle, who were advising him legally in the aftermath of the 2020 election, who many of whom were telling him, no, what you are doing is wrong. You lost the election. Um, Two of those folks I mentioned, um, Richard Donahue and Jeffrey Rosen, were, were pushing back and saying, you know, we will resign if you keep moving forward with this, um, you know, <laughs> with a lot of the things you're doing. So, uh, Tamara, I'm obviously not an attorney, so uh, help me if, if you can with this. Um, when you have names like Mike Pence, uh, like Bill Barr, significant figures in the Trump administration, to what extent... Uh, are they empowered in a criminal case once they're subpoenaed to fight those subpoenas? And how could they drag out their testimony should they choose to do that? 
Well, I'd put it into kind of two classes of people. The folks who used to serve at the Justice Department, folks like Bill Barr, Richard Donahue, Jeff Rosen, they are going to need special approval from the the Biden administration. Um, it's called a, a Tuhi process, and, and basically they have to get permission in order to testify. And so that could lead to some, some delays potentially. I know that was an issue during the special grand jury phase. For other folks, um, some people, I remember Brad Raffensperger fell into this category last year. They want to be subpoenaed. Um, before you know, they're not going to do this willingly. They they need that subpoena to compel them. There are ways to try and fight that, though. Um, they won't accept service of a subpoena potentially, and then it has to go through a local judge in folks' home jurisdiction. So, for the people who live in Virginia, it would be a Virginia judge who's trying to decide how necessary you are to come in. And we already saw earlier in the process many folks, many allies of the former president, really fighting their subpoenas. Most of them lost, um, but it still could drag out the process. Greg, tell us, um, you and I were on the phone yesterday while you were driving to Tuscaloosa and simultaneously trying to confirm some of these names as Tamar and Bill Rankin were doing the same thing. Um, first of all, I hope that you were doing it all um, hands-free. <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> Second of all, what other names jump out to you that the John Isaacson is fascinating because I remember when you broke the story that John Isaacson um, had declined to participate in that alternate elector meeting. Well, what was so strange about this, and Tamar can speak to this too, is you know there's more than there's nearly 200 people on this list. It doesn't mean that all these people will get called to actually testify. The way it was explained to me by a smart lawyer is that this basically preserves the prosecution's right to call on someone. Um, so you know it shouldn't be read as a th- th- this trial could last even longer than we expected to if all th- nearly 200 people are called. But it, but th- th- many of them could be called. So it's sort of a roadmap. But uh, what strikes me as so unique about this is a lot of the people on this witness list weren't necessarily aware they're even on this witness list, right? It's not something where, where they get a subpoena immediately or their 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 lawyers are called immediately. And uh, Tamar and I were on a text chain with one official who Tamar had to break the news to that person that they were indeed on the on the witness list. And that person said, oh, you know, oh, you basically. Oh, no. <laughs> so it's a really strange setup. And there's a lot of people who might not mind. Um, testifying, as you mentioned earlier, right? Jeff Duncan, Brad Raffensperger, who made it very clear that, hey, they've been out there before, they'll they'll keep on going out there. But then there's plenty of Republicans who don't want to testify, don't want anything to do with this, even if, even if, you know, they, they, they're perfectly fine with the way, the manner in which they acted, you know, even if they're fine with their role in pushing back on Donald Trump, for instance, who still don't want to, that spotlight shined on them. You know, one of the things that I find interesting about seeing this list Tamar, Greg, and Patricia, is, um, as as you mentioned, Tamar, there's these different buckets in which uh, various defendants fall. But when this comes to trial, and as I look at the various names involved here, it's really fascinating to think about the kind of narrative that Fannie Willis's uh, office is going to have to put together to bring all these buckets together and to uh, describe the conspiracy um, in such a way that it touches each of the defendants, there's a sense in which it's almost like sitting down to write a novel uh, to try to figure out what do you start with? Where do you go first? Do you go to uh, Mike Pence and his conversations with Trump in the White House in which Trump said you have the right to not certify the election? Do you start with um 
uh, people like Brad Raffensperger. And the, I'm fascinated that we're going to get a chance to see this narrative eventually play out. And I'm sure right now that's one of the most important things prosecutors are starting to try to figure out themselves. Prosecutors are going. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was going to ask you. Pick up on that. Prosecutors are going to have to tell a story to these jurors. And these are everyday folks, many of whom you can assume have not been following every twist and turn in this case. They've got to break this down in a way that's compelling and understandable. Um, And you saw them kind of take a first stab at it in the introduction of the indictment, which is more than 97 pages long. But they do kind of attempt to try and do that. But there's still plenty of evidence that prosecutors have that hasn't been in the public domain. So it'll be very interesting to see how this is presented to a jury. But I do think if there's one kind of through line for a lot of these witnesses who are on this list is that many of them can speak to Trump's intent uh, in the weeks after the election. It's one thing that he called somebody like Brad Raffensperger or Brian Kemp. But what in his head was he trying to do in those things? Was he Did he know that he was asking folks to do something illegal? Um, or was it a good faith attempt? Um, one other name on this list was Cassidy Hutchison, the former aide to, to Mark Meadows, who made a big name for herself uh, testifying to the January 6th committee. She talked about overhearing or participating in conversations in which Trump seemed to admit, at least privately, that he lost, even though publicly he was saying he won and there was all sorts of fraud. That can speak to Trump's intent in um, in the weeks after the election. So the DA is going to be looking for folks like that. And I think that's why she wants folks like Mike Pence, Bill Barr, who we know had told the president that he had lost, um, folks like Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Jonahue at DOJ, who were telling him, what you are doing is so wrong that we will resign if you move forward. And Tamara, how does all of this relate to the uh, people who have already pled guilty as well? Will that be a part of the the testimony? Will they serve as witnesses? How does all of that work together as well? The four folks who pled guilty, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Ken Chesbro, Scott Hall, they all could be used as witnesses in this case. That was part of their plea agreements was that they were willing to offer themselves up to however much prosecutors wanted to use them and their story moving forward. So we should definitely be on the lookout for that. We've already seen Jenna Ellis's testimony um, come into play in recent weeks. Um, Her cooperation agreement, she was cited uh, when there was a whole bond revocation hearing with Harrison Floyd, another defendant. Um, so they're ones to watch. There's also names when they were about to go to a speedy trial um, who the DA's office said they wanted to call as witnesses. Folks like Alex Jones, the right-wing broadcaster, Ronna McDaniel, the chairwoman of the RNC, Boris Epstein, one of Trump's closest aides. Those are folks who could also um, appear later on as part of a potential trial as well. We are here with Tamar Hallerman, the AJC senior reporter and also co-host of the award-winning breakdown podcast on exactly what we're talking about, the Donald Trump election interference trial. And tomorrow, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we can drill down a little deeper into Mike Pence because I was reading a lot of the national coverage, which focused on his role on the January 6th and, and, you know, and the pressure on him to overturn the election results. But, you know, it's interesting because here, of course, there's this unique Georgia angle as well. The AJC reported back in 2021 that several senior state Republicans plan to hand deliver a letter to Pence urging him to delay congressional action to confirm President Biden's victory. One of those Republicans is the current Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. They say the letter was never delivered, 
but I'm I'm guessing I'm I'm assuming here that Pence, if, if if he is called to testify, could shed light on the pressure from Georgia officials on him to undermine the state's election. Yeah, that's certainly something to watch. But also remember that this indictment goes beyond the borders of Georgia. Mm-hmm. It talks about activity, especially with the Trump electors that went down in Pennsylvania, Arizona, New Mexico. Um, so remember, this is a national conspiracy that the DA is talking about. So she doesn't necessarily need to be focusing on Georgia actions when it comes to people like John Eastman or Mike Pence. But it will certainly be interesting if prosecutors do want to wade in to some of that pressure from folks like Burt Jones and some of his colleagues in the state senate um so uh at, at, at tomorrow at, let me i want to ask you an, another question about the um uh reporting you greg and bill have done on on the witnesses um it it, it strikes me that what we're going to be watching here is um a trial that now as you already have indicated could be playing out if we're going to if it's potentially 200 plus witnesses Fannie Willis has already said, we know she wants an August start date. We know that Steve Sadow was in court the other day uh, arguing in front of Judge uh, Scott McAfee that we can't start then. We'll be in the heat of the presidential race, which Trump presumably will be the Republican nominee for. But Willis has already said that this trial, if it begins uh, late summer, could easily run all the way through the election and the inauguration of the next president of the United States. And with this long list of witnesses, that seems like it's very realistically a possibility. Certainly. And that doesn't take into account jury selection. Prosecutors say that they they expect their case would take about four months to present. Um, But how long does the defense need to to defend against that? And then Mm. on top of that jury selection, um, There's another RICO case going on, the Young Slime Life case involving Young Thug. It's a very different case, but jury selection dragged on for something like nine, 10 months. Um, Who knows how it'll play out here, but Donald Trump is certainly, he's not an unknown quantity. People love him or they hate him. It might be kind of hard to find 12 people who don't have strong feelings (laughs) about him one way or another, or who don't have, um, you know, who haven't been closely following this case. So that's a dynamic to watch. And remember, if Donald Trump wins in November of 2024 and he gets inaugurated in January of 25, um, it's going to be an open question whether this case can continue beyond January. This is such uncharted territory. This is 1,000% something that that will be litigated in the courts moving forward. And it's something where potentially Fannie Willis could be stopped from continuing a case um, if Donald Trump is elected. So I think there's a lot of danger in waiting longer into 2024. Um I think now it's a question of all the other cases that are on Donald Trump's calendar. Um, the the Jack Smith January 6th case begins in March. Um, there's the Manhattan one at the end of March with the hush money payments. Right now, the classified documents case is set to begin in May. That, that case could move. And so that's what I'm currently looking at. If that case gets delayed, does Fannie Willis push to get her case next in the calendar? Um, but it's a real delicate act right now. And and we really don't know what's going to happen moving forward. But Tamar, Fonnie Willis has said she is making the decision she's making and she's not going by anybody's political timetable. Is that real? Is that realistic? (laughs) Well, certainly. I mean, folks in the justice system say that all the time. and, And yeah, they shouldn't have to pay attention to politics. But there's also the reality of the fact that there's a very good chance that 
the key defendant in this case could end up in the White House and could end up with a Justice Department that would fight this on his behalf. And because this involves a president, this could this question could very much end up at the Supreme Court. Can a president be you know, fighting off something in court for an indictment that happened before he came into office. The Justice Department, we know, uh, says for a sitting president, you can't really bring a criminal case against him while he's in the White House. But what happens for for cases that were brought before then? It's such unchartered territory, and it will be fought in the courts. Okay, well, if the stakes weren't already high enough, we've now got a potential (laughs) U.S. Supreme Court case looming. Well, Tamar, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Terrific reporting from you, Greg, and Bill Rankin. And we will continue to have you back on Politically Georgia as news breaks, which I have no doubt will be very soon. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. We think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. The final day of the special session on redistricting is underway at the state capitol today where congressional maps are set to get final approval. One of the districts getting overhauled is Georgia's 6th Congressional District. And joining us to talk about that is Cobb County Commissioner Jerrica Richardson. That's because she's not only a commissioner in Cobb County, but also an announced candidate for that 6th Congressional District. Jerrica, thanks so much for coming in. My absolute pleasure. And hello, everybody. Hello to you. I do believe you and Greg Bluestein also know each other, perhaps from a high school connection. Go Spartans. <laughs> Go Spartans. There's always a North Springs connection, isn't there? Uh, you are a per- you're one of a parade of Spartans yeah. to come through this particular studio. We actually took a picture with a bunch of Spartans at the state capitol a couple of days ago, Patricia. That I is did. hilarious. So if you're looking for your power, your power players, the high school is uh, North Springs. It's just um, a little shameless plug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, Commissioner Richardson, let us know about your thinking. You got out very early for the 6th District, even when many suspected that that district could really get changed a lot. Talk about that thinking. Absolutely. You know, when I uh, first looked at the 6th District, first of all, I live in it. And um, as, a, as a district commissioner that occupies a significant portion, um, there were some key things that I thought needed to really happen for our community. Uh, Things that I'm currently working on, I've been working closely with federal allies, uh, certainly state level as well, but there are some policies and some investments that uh, I think need to be prioritized to come back into Georgia. And so in looking at the 6th District and wanting to serve the community in that capacity, um, this decision was made completely void of any court decision at all. It was just about doing the work and continuing the work. Yeah, you got um, into the race when Rich McCormick w- w- obviously is still the 6th District candidate, um, but it looked like it would have been a contest between, the, obviously, the Democratic nominee and Rich McCormick. Now we just don't know. Now we have no clue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, now, I will just, the teaser on that is I don't think these maps are going to hold that have been proposed. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but for at that time, when looking at the district, I knew that um, to flip it, it, it certainly is a difficult seat for a Democrat to to try to win on the basis of being a Democrat. The numbers aren't necessarily there. Uh, but I knew that I owed it to the community not just to um, build those conversations early, those relationships early, but to understand what all people were looking for, because I knew the area, the portion I represented, and I knew what my community was really looking for in the district, um, but wanted to have conversations with people in the community, in the broader 6th district. You know, I, I wasn't as aware of um, all the issues in Dawson County, for instance, or, or Forsyth, and wanted to have relevant conversations on the ground and get out early. And you can't do that all before mm-hmm. election day. You really need to build those conver- build those relationships and, and, and flesh that out early on. So that was the decision to go early. Is, is it, it would have been negligent otherwise. Commissioner, as you mentioned, you get in the race early. You get in the race a few months ago. You had a big rollout in Alpharetta. You've been all over the district. It was at a time when Rich McCormick, uh, the first-term Republicans district, seemed uncertain. You said you're in it to win it. You're, you're in no matter what. Now, if these maps hold up in court, McCormick could be even more difficult for a Democrat to defeat. So do you stay in the contest against him? Assuming these maps, I know it's a big assumption, but assuming these maps still hold sway, do you stay in that district or do you look at one of those other districts uh, that have, that, that I don't know if they're going to be quote unquote open, but, <laughs> but are one of the newly created district out in West Metro Atlanta? Yeah. Um, mind you, I got into this to deliver some real services, some real benefits to the ground that I think are, are missing. And so we will certainly be watching what the maps show and make that determination at that point. I want to make sure that what it is that we're bringing to the table is something the community wants. Um, but again, I it's hard for me to answer questions on maps that I don't think are going to hold. I, I, I don't think they pass the 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 sniff test as far as uh, there, there are some failures on that. So, I, uh, Commissioner, okay. I don't think it was an accident that in uh, your first uh, response to Patricia's question, uh, one of the things you said was that you actually live in the 6th District. We know Rich McCormick doesn't <laughs> live mm-hmm. in that district. So I, it, it, that tells me that who knows what might happen moving forward, but if the district remains one that Rich McCormick thinks he can win, it sounds like you're saying you might try to build a campaign against him, uh, hopefully uh, drawing enough support. Um, and, and maybe one of the issues will be that he doesn't live in the district. Um, I mean, it possibly could. Yes, as it's evaluated today, I live in the district as the lines are drawn. We don't know what the lines will be tomorrow. And so for me, it's about, like I said, making sure that what it is that we are trying to deliver to the community is meaningful for the community. Because that's what we're elected to do, um, not elected to wear a name badge or attend fancy events. It is to deliver the things that people really need on the ground. Let's talk a little bit more about this process of redistricting the maps. Mm-hmm. Um, you've said that you don't think they're going to hold, mm-hmm. um, that we've heard from a number of Democrats who have a lot of very specific complaints about them. But what's your analysis of of the maps and what it does to that area in Cobb County? Because I believe under the new maps, uh, the 6th District would shift west. And I don't know if that would still include any portion of that of that Cobb area. Tell us a little bit about your read on it and your objections to it. Yeah, so the proposed map does include a significant portion of Cobb. It's not identical to the plaintiff's uh, 6th district, but it is 
I would say maybe 50 or so percent, okay. somewhere around there, um, similar. It's the it's the eastern side of the map, the proposed map that looks very different from the okay. plaintiffs. Um, where I think there will be some inconsistencies is uh, I know that there there's a lot of conversation about opportunity districts. And while the judge's ruling in the remedy section does note um, a focus on creating a majority black district, it also references the Gingles standard. And that's where I think there is not as much attention in terms of what the definition of an opportunity district is, what a majority minority uh, district is, and that there was a desire to leave those alone. And the plaintiff's map was also, a, it, was, it was noted as being a map that would be consistent with the spirit of that remedy. And we all know that that is not what has been proposed um, by the state legislature at this point in time. Um, and certainly with the voting going on, it is not what's being proposed by the state legislature. So I think uh, as far as the impact to Cobb, it still covers a significant portion of my district um, in those proposed maps, but I am about maybe four streets north of that district line. Okay, so, so. you would be out of the new six. There's, it is not required, as we all know, that Correct. members live in their exact district. But again, until we know exactly what the lines are going to look like, um, we're going to have to wait and see who lives in which district. We're not really going to know. Correct, but about half of Cobb falls into what's being proposed. Okay, got it. Um, tell us a little bit more about yourself. I know you're a Georgia Tech graduate. Mm -hmm. um, you've been on the Cobb Commission now for uh, for some time. Um, tell us about what you've seen on the on the commission and, and why jump from um, that local office to a potential federal office? Yeah, thanks for that question. It, it has certainly been a wild ride as a commissioner. Um, so kind of the joke that people are saying, I'm, I'm, I'm rejecting these maps that have been drawn. I'm not new to rejecting maps. Mm -hmm. um, I know it's, <laughs> I have a very engaged community and uh, partly the reason I know we, you said we saw each other at the Capitol. I was there just uh, to show some solidarity with uh, members of my community who have been at the Capitol day in, day out to express their their concerns, their fears, and even offer up different suggestions as well to sitting members. Um, but as a, as a commissioner, it has been, as I said, a, a dynamic time, fruitful, productive, um, in collaboration with with members of the community. So in our short period of time, we have, we've identified over 300 initiatives to get through um, our office, and we are on target to complete every single one of them. And they are not done in a vacuum. They are done in collaboration with, as I mentioned, federal agencies, our federal level, our state level, other commissioners. Many of these things are regional, uh, regional opportunities for us to pursue. And so the quote-unquote jump to uh, congressional office is really just about continuing that story. So we'll be done with the foundation of what we promised to lay down as a commission and now it's time to make sure that we close the other side to this. I figured it'd be a little bit easier if I were right down the street. We are here with Commissioner Cobb County Commissioner Jerrica Richardson, who's also announced candidate for Congress. We're not sure quite what district <laughs> it's going to be because we're not sure how these maps will shake out. But that brings us to our next question, Commissioner, because, you know, there as these maps hold right now, there are four Democratic leaning House districts. There are also four Democratic House incumbents. You, you know, these maps could be tossed. There could be uh, new things that happen. But my question for you is that would you rule out 
challenging or running against a Democratic incumbent such as David Scott or Lucy McBath, Nakima Williams, uh, uh, Hank Johnson. Is is that something that is in your calculus? Or if there's only four districts that are made, that are drawn for a Democratic majority, would would you still be in this race? So on our, our, our sitting Congress people, I, I have the utmost respect, uh, especially for uh, Congressman David Scott and Congresswoman uh, Lucy McBath. They have been wonderful partners to work with, even as a commissioner. Uh, we've been able to make sure that things get through and funding gets applied for as as needed. But um, as far as the, the maps are concerned, that is the calculus that we're looking at. It is never my intent to displace a sitting incumbent um, that's a part of the Democratic Party. Uh, that is That is just not something that I jumped into this race for. What I am in this race for is to ultimately deliver some where there where I see some gaps as far as infrastructural investments are concerned uh, for what currently exists as the sixth district. And as these new maps, these new uh, lines get drawn, we will evaluate at that point uh, where the need is, where the gap is, and what it is that I can deliver, and then whether or not my message uh, will resonate with the communities that that's going to best be delivered to. Just but it sounds it. like you're ruling out like a head-to-head clash with someone like Lucy McBath or or David Scott, if if that's the case. Right. I I, I again appreciate all the work that they do. That is not the intent here. Um, just taking a step away from your potential congressional district, whatever it might be, I do think it's worthwhile because you referred to it in an oblique sort of way mm-hmm. to talk about how you've been at the heart of a very different uh, redistricting issue, and that is the question, as we know. The Republican legislature redrew the commission districts in Cobb County um, as state statutes seem to give them the power to do, um, and you were a victim of that uh, uh, new map. Of course, there's been a court case uh, in which uh, the courts are going to be asked to decide whether, in fact, a county commission, in this case the Cobb County Commission, can, in fact, override the decision of the legislature to draw the maps and draw their own maps. And I'm curious about that case and to what extent that has influenced your decision. It's time to be thinking about a different office. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, great great question and certainly a logical approach to that. (laughs) Um, But but the reality was that the decision to run for Congress is completely separate. It was, as I mentioned, we've been very productive, we're almost done. And I want to close it out. I did not want to have a sitting state senator be the reason for what I decide to do with my political career and what I deliver to my community. It should be completely focused on what is needed by people. Um, That aside, for this court case, yeah, it certainly has been an interesting um, football game, I guess, uh, since uh, (laughs) we're on that topic. But um, so just to summarize for everybody, there was a map that was drawn uh, as, as as a result of the census. The census did not require a new district map for Cobb County, um, but a map was drawn by our uh, by the sitting Cobb delegation, local delegation. And on the side, a couple of legislators decided they were going to draw an alternative map to that, that that were a part of the majority party, the Republican Party. They then pushed that map through the state legislature, and instead of going with the local legislation, they went with just general legislation and followed that map, which forced, would have forced me out of office. And of course, we should point out that this was the Republican legislature trying to redraw a map 
that would in fact um, uh, have an impact on the democratic control of the Cobb County uh, Commission, um, which is another reason why the your commission uh, uh, colleagues are pushing back so hard on this. It would have definitely, it, it would have kept the dynamics as they exist today and it would have curbed the change that was occurring in Cobb County for future, um, uh, for an increase in the majority. So for, um, for what happened with that, though, is because of how that map was drawn and the process that it took, it would have forced me to resign immediately. I'd yeah. have to vacate. I would have to vacate my office, according to the interpretation, because well, that's what it. They were they were in conflict with one another. Uh, that being the first time it happened in Georgia, uh, we decided we would look at what are some of the provisions that could be taken by the county uh, to counteract a constitutional crisis, and. Um, and that's when we discovered home rule. I mean, we already knew what home rule was, but to utilize home rule in this way. And so the county took the local legislation that the state the state legislators had passed or had filed, and we replaced that map with the one that they did pass. So there's still two state legislative bills. We just amended one of the bills to be the bill to be the map that we preferred. Um, so that is why I'm currently a sitting commissioner. Otherwise, I would have had to yeah. vacate our office and it would have set a precedent that any elected official would be forced to resign at any time. And that's a problem. Um, so here we are. And there is a court case that's proceeding on that front. The community has been very engaged and we're expecting to hear uh, the ruling on that at our superior, our Cobb Superior Court uh, at the end before the end of the year. So one more question before we have to let you go. Sure. Um, what is your mindset to have been elected a Cobb commissioner? The Republican legislature changes those lines and you find yourself in a really different position. You announce for Congress, the Republican legislature by court order from a from a um, federally appointed judge um, has now redrawn the lines of the district you were intending to run in. Um, you are uh a young person, you're obviously ambitious, but how frustrating is it to see these kinds of roadblocks put in what the way of what you'd like to do, which is just simply to run for office? <laughs> <laughs> I will say, as frustrating as it could be, it's also what there's an inspiring seesaw to this, and that's that's my community. At every stop, in, uh, at every roadblock, there has been just an incredible outpouring of community support um, ingenuity in terms of how to tackle some of these things. And I don't expect this to be any different. You know, at the end of the day, people just want people that represent them. And if we can keep that the focus, well, I'll be okay. All right. Well, we've heard from uh, District Judge Steve Jones that he intends to hold a hearing on December 20th mm -hmm. to review the maps that are, we expect to either have been approved this within moments here at the legislature and signed by the governor tonight. Jerrica Richardson, thank you so much for joining us in studio today. Thank you very much. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. No media organization in Atlanta is covering politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast in the Morning Jolt newsletter, and now we have the new Politically Georgia PM Update newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up on what's going on while you're at work or at home. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. So, Greg, let's start with you. Tell us what you saw at the debate last night. Well, Patricia, the bottom line for anyone who watched or didn't watch is the candidate you most like won the debate and the candidate you hate the most lost it. No, <laughs> kidding. Uh, no, in all seriousness, I thought it was a really rough night for for Nikki Haley, um, who seemed to be on the sidelines for long stretches of the debate and a really great one for Chris Christie, who I think really had a moment to shine. He used the spotlight to attack both Donald Trump and the other Republicans on the stage who refused to criticize him. And then there's Vivek Ramaswamy, who I thought absolutely bombed. Chris Christie verbally <laughs> disemboweled him. Let's listen to some of that audio. I'm not I'm done yet. Well, this now is- Now look, this is, on, this, is this is not a spew. This is not a spew nonsense. This is the fourth debate, the fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. So <laughs> shut up for a little while. And Patricia, I thought Nikki Haley's reaction was even more biting to Vivek Ramaswamy. She deprived him even of a response to his attacks. Total indifference. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. I love that. It's just some New Jersey truth right there, <laughs> Bill. I, I got to tell you, I I was so depressed by the time that debate was over because, number one, uh, these are all people who are playing to be second uh, to Donald Trump, uh, nobody except Christie was really willing to take him head on. I don't know how they expect they're going to be able to win the nomination from him without being more direct. I was depressed by the fact that um, Vivek Ramaswamy actually uh, told all these conspiracy theories. He said, we now know that January 6th was an inside job. I was shocked that none of the moderators, who I thought for the most part did a really good job, challenged him and asked him, what do you mean, Mr. Ramaswamy, it was an inside job? I was depressed because while I think I understand that transgender young people is a significant culture issue out there, but to hear candidates for president arguing about which bathroom students should use struck me as the sort of thing you talk about in school board meetings, not when it comes to the policies that the United States is going to pursue domestically and in uh, international affairs. I, I just was depressed by the whole thing. Well, it's so interesting, Greg, that you thought that Nikki Haley had a weak night. I thought she was pretty good, I have to say. Um, cool as a cucumber, despite being the absolute target of so many attacks. And um, uh, did you want to say? Well, just I, it, to some extent, she seemed to be playing rope-a-dope thinking that she has been moving up in the polls and didn't need to engage in the back-and-forth quibbling of the other candidates. Yeah, and I think I watched the debate the next day, so I did not see the real-time responses. And then I also watched the clips, and a lot of the clips was this exchange between Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy um, when she said she had no intention of really getting into it with him. 
And I reject the use of identity politics in this party. It has been a cancer coming from the left, and I'm sick and tired of the double standards the people of this country are too. Having two X chromosomes does not immunize okay, you from thank criticism. You. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Governor Haley, would you like to respond? No. It's not worth my time to respond to him. You, you have been using identity politics at every step. She knows it's true. Greg, not worth her time. Yeah, she just shrugged him off, and and we saw we saw that that tactic in the last debate as well. Um, he's in the single digits in the polls. He he's not uh, proving to be a real threat to anyone, and he's just really just kind of propping Donald Trump up and promoting uh, c- conspiracy theories and lies when he when he gets the chance. Um, but you know, back to the Nikki Haley point. Um, it, there, there was long stretches of that debate. If you watch the whole thing, where where she was not a factor, and you're right, um, she she might not have had that that need to be because she has gained in the polls. Ron DeSantis is ceding ground to Nikki Haley, and so that makes her a target. And there was another point that they she's like, "Hey, come on, fellas, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, bring it on," sort of like that. She sort of relished the moment, but there because of that tactic in ignoring Vivek Ramaswamy, it gave Chris Christie this opening to just, as I mentioned earlier, disembowel Vivek Ramaswamy, stand up for Nikki Haley. And I don't know if Nikki Haley wanted Chris Christie to stand up for her, but I don't think she needs it, but stood up for her and said, hey, you know, this is, you've gone far beyond the line here. Yeah, let's listen to a final clip here. It's exactly what you're talking about, Greg, when Chris Christie just absolutely hammered Donald Trump, which is what I think some independent voters have been waiting for. Here's that audio. I want you all to kind of picture in your minds election day. You'll all be heading to the polls to vote. And that's something that Donald Trump will not be able to do because he will be convicted of felonies before then and his right to vote will be taken away. You know, you look... Here's the bottom line. You can boo about it all you like and continue to deny reality. But if we deny reality as a party, we're going to have four more years of Joe Biden. Greg, what are your final thoughts on that debate? Yeah, it was kind of a dual message. You had Chris Christie not just attacking Donald Trump, but also criticizing the other Republicans on the stage for not attacking Donald Trump. And you also had Chris Christie warning that, hey, not only could Donald Trump, you know, if he's the nominee, he will lose to Joe Biden, but he also was worried in warning, he was like sort of a herald saying that if you uh, appease Donald Trump, this party is moving further and further toward autocracy and authoritarianism. Very quickly, uh, Patricia, I'm curious about your response. Uh, Chris Christie got some praise for defending Nikki Haley and saying she's a very smart, a very strong woman. So some people said, what, what a wonderful thing. Nikki Haley can certainly stand up for herself. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's not a double-edged sword, a man thinking he has to come to the defense of a woman who certainly doesn't need a guy defending her. You know, it didn't bother me because Nikki Haley has shown over and over that she can stand Mm. up for herself. She has commanded every one of these debates. And I think that it was really a moment, maybe more of a plea for civility Mm. um, on Christie's part. Just because she's a woman, I don't think that it was any more urgent than, um, than had anybody else been just sort of a, a competent, qualified candidate. And he said, let's just stick to the issues. Why are you going after these people's individual character? So it, did, I don't, it didn't really bother Good. me, though. Okay. Yeah. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around 1 o'clock each day. If you like what you hear, please give us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. 
Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor. But I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com.